Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast where we spend an hour diving into a particular area of study here at Rosedale Bible College. My name is Jeremy Miller, and I'm here with Phil Weber. Phil is our academic dean. He's been the academic dean at Rosedale Bible College for about 12 years, and he's taught the Book of Romans for about 14 years. And Romans is the subject of our crash course, so we're going to try to get an overview of Romans in one hour. So, Phil, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jeremy. Hey, I have a question to maybe kick off the conversation with. What do you love to see your students comprehend about the book of Romans? The most exciting thing for me is just to see the students spend time with the text, discover that God is speaking to them through it, and then respond, uh, which they do many times through the journal that I ask them to produce. We go through the, the, the whole book of Romans, section by section. They summarize every section, they read some commentary, and then they try to apply the truth of that passage to their lives, and that's a very productive process. What what have you seen come out of their journaling? Or, or maybe I'll ask this. Is there a common theme as you move through the Book of Romans that you see your stu- students sort of grab onto? It varies a great deal with their own spiritual journeys, of course, but one of the things that I think Romans is trying to do that I'm always looking for is for them to truly internalize the reality that they cannot achieve, earn, keep their own salvation. Mm. This is a gift from God through faith. It has many powerful implications, which of course we try to work out, but it's from God. Yeah. Well, Phil, help us help us understand how students get there, how you get there in in your course over a course of a semester. Uh, let's see if we can do that in a few minutes here. Shouldn't be hard. It's only sixteen chapters. <laughs> I always like to start with what are we looking at. So we're going to be spending time with this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Church, and. I think it's really helpful just to, just to spend some time considering what that is. So we know that this is an ancient book. We know that it's written by the Apostle Paul, which is a great blessing because many books uh, scholars have cast doubt on that, not the case for Romans. Uh, and I think it's good to just think a little bit about the context because even though the Word of God is timeless, these truths that we find in Romans they're very much conditioned by circumstances. So it comes to us here in the form of, of human writing. So when we read in Romans 16, to greet Herodion, my fellow Jew, we should have some understanding that that's not for everyone at all time. When it says greet one another with a holy kiss, that's a very interesting question. Is that for all time or isn't it? <laughs> when it says live in harmony with one another, we can be pretty sure That's us. Uh, I also think it's fun to think about how this text came to be. It's it's transcribed speech. It's not some word processed essay. And you can, when you realize that as you read through Romans, you can kind of get a sense sometimes that Paul is really excited, and he's rattling off this text to his transcriber, and 
it, it just goes on. Sometimes he doesn't even finish the, the thought that he started. Barclay says, uh, we must not think of Paul sitting quietly at a desk, carefully polishing each sentence as he wrote. We must think of him striding up and down some little room, pouring out a torrent of words while his secretary raced to get them down. Paul's letters are living, vital torrents of words poured straight from his heart. And I think that's a, a great picture. I also like to ask students, and so I'll ask you, you're not my student, but reading Romans, is it most like which of these? Is it most like reading a personal letter from God to me? Is it most like reading someone else's mail? Is it most like reading a letter to people like me? Or is it most like reading another list of rules I'm supposed to keep? That's, that's interesting. I, I think I would say three. So the letter to people like me. Yeah. I think that's the right answer. Okay. I mean, it can be a personal letter from God to us, but I, don't, I think we need to understand that that's, that's work at a different level. That's the Spirit enlivening it to me. It is reading someone else's mail. The, the letter is explicit that it's to the Roman church, but it also is written to people like us. So we, we keep these two ideas in mind as we read. So that's what we're looking at. Uh, the book itself breaks down into these three broad categories. They're not of equal length, but the first 11 chapters, chapters are pretty much doctrine, there is that brief doxology at the end of chapter 11, and then 12 through 16 gets very practical. So if we want to keep the Ds going, we've got doctrine, doxology, and duty. So that's kind of the overview, the background, before we get into the book itself. Sounds good. That's helpful. Thank you. So there's so much in Romans. I tell the students my main objective is not to ruin the book. There's just so much in there, we can't possibly get it all out. But we start in Romans with this great introduction that Paul has to what he's going to be uh, telling them about, and it's about the gospel. So my first question is, what do we believe about the gospel? And in the very first verse of Romans, Paul says he is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then for these next verses, he just keeps on talking about what the gospel of God is. And the first thing he says, that it is a gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So first of all, this is the gospel of God. It's not human speculation or philosophy. It's something that God promised in the Old Testament and has delivered in the New Testament. N.T. Wright calls this God's single saving plan through Israel for the world. He hyphenates that old phrase. I, I like that. God's single saving plan through Israel for the world. That's the gospel. So the gospel's from God. It's been promised beforehand. The gospel is about Jesus, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
in case we're not sure who he's talking about, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, our Lord. I like to say, if it's not about Jesus, it ain't gospel. It's just that simple. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that this gospel of God through Jesus is for everyone. It's for all the nations, including you Gentiles. So this means that the gospel is for everyone, without exception and without favoritism. And it is for, or it is intended to bring about the obedience of faith. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. I find that phrase, the obedience of faith, very interesting. So we could say, is there any other kind of obedience besides an obedience of faith? And I think the answer is, well, yes. Is there any faith if there's no obedience? That one is a little trickier. But we spend a good bit of time trying to to tease out what does this phrase, the obedience of faith, mean? I think what we can conclude is that the nature of saving faith does involve submission or obedience of some kind. It is not a disembodied faith. And our obedience is also to be in obedience of faith in the sense that we aren't obeying to satisfy God's requirement on our own. It is an obedience of faith. It is a trusting obedience, not a grace-earning obedience. So, to conclude, what do we believe about the gospel? The gospel centers on a person. That person is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We learn that the resurrection is what crowns Jesus, the Lord of all human beings. It makes him the Son of God in power. And so he brings the gospel. And of course, we should ask the question, how are we partnering with God to spread this gospel, this great gospel that Paul introduces in these very first chapters of the book? That moves us through chapter one it actually moves us through the first seven verses of chapter (laughs) one the second set of beliefs that i think romans urges us to consider is what do we believe about ourselves so very important without a savior you and i are under god's wrath this is what the book says The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So I ask the question, is God angry? And I get lots of really interesting answers. I think it's important to recognize this anger that is described here, this wrath really, is not irritation. It's not the kind of uncontrolled uh, annoyance that just is like a volcano inside of us. This is God's character being expressed against sin. And it's being revealed presently. As he explains, God's wrath is revealed because he allows us to do what we wanted to do anyway. And that's one expression of God's wrath, and that's not the entire expression of God's wrath, because there's coming the great day of God's wrath that isn't here yet. 
And he's angry and he's expressing his wrath against godlessness, against wickedness, against suppression of the truth. We as a species seem to have this tendency to want to tamp down, to submerge the truth about who we really are. So uh, in, the, in the last part of, of chapter 1, Paul is making the point very strongly that these Gentile sinners are condemned. They suppress what they know about God from nature. They refuse to acknowledge God, and so God gives them over to their own desires. They persist in sin, and not only that, they applaud other sinners. Like, good for you. And I think we can almost imagine Paul thinking, okay, you've been listening to me write about those kinds of shameless Gentile sinners, those idol worshipers. And then he moves on and says, but by the way, you, O man who judges. My friend who is a preacher says, O man who judges, he reads that as, you who, you who are judging. You're not off the hook. You also are under God's wrath. And Paul goes and explains, if you are one of these Judges, if you're one of these religious moralizers, you may be blind to your own faults. You may think that God's blessings on you indicate his approval, but you're wrong. God sees right through you. His judgment is going to be impartial. You aren't going to be excused because you think you're nice. And he continues then in, the, in chapter 2 to say that the Jews also, as a category, are not excused from God's wrath. They also are condemned. They're not sheltered by the law. They're not even sheltered by circumcision. That was the ritual they looked to, to protect them from God's wrath and from hell. And Paul says, if you're not obedient, your circumcision is worthless. So Jews, you aren't sheltered from God's wrath. Religious moralizers, you aren't scared. You aren't, um, bah. Religious moralizers, you aren't sheltered from God's wrath, just like the idolatrous, shameless Gentiles are not as well. And then in the first part of chapter 3, he just quotes a whole series of Old Testament passages explaining that man is depraved in his character, in his conduct, and that on the judgment day, when God gives his judgment, every mouth will be silenced. There's not going to be anyone who says, Ah, but that wasn't right. You didn't see this. We're going to agree. You're right. So the heart of the problem really is the problem of the heart. So we're all condemned. I, uh, I show a picture on the um, slideshow of myself in various shades of blue. And I say, if depravity were the color blue... This is what I would look like. It's a picture. So some parts are deep and dark blue. Some parts are very light blue. There is no part of that picture that is not blue. Hmm. We, none of us probably are as bad as we could be when we say totally depraved. None of our actions are uh, escape from the taint of that depravity. So how do we respond to this message of Paul? I think the response is, we need a savior. We should make certain we've accepted God's assessment that we are sinners. Yes, that's accurate. 
And I think we should flee to the only refuge there is from God's wrath, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, mentioned earlier. Phil, I'd like to just break in there for a second and ask your analysis. Uh, You've taught this course a lot of years. Have you noticed any uh, shift in your students' um, perspective on the wrath of God or hell as a concept? Has there been a noticeable shift in your students' uh, willingness to, or, or maybe discomfort with those ideas? I have looked for it, and I don't think I've seen that kind of trend Interesting. Am- among our students. They are aware that there is that trend, but they don't seem to be part of it generally. That's interesting. Okay. Are we ready? Pace? It's great. Okay. The next question that Romans invites us to consider, I think, is what do we believe about faith that saves? He spent much of the first three chapters making the point that we need a Savior and that the way to escape from God's wrath is through faith in Jesus. So what kind of faith is that? Chapter 3, verse 21, we have the hinge point in chapter 3. We have the hinge point in the Epistle of Romans. And in the minds of many scholars, at least, we have a hinge point in the whole Scripture because Paul writes, but now. But now, the righteousness of God. Is being revealed. He's going to provide for us um, the the perfect answer to our very profound problem. I'm just going to make a couple of points about faith. This comes from chapters three and four. Uh, first of all, faith relies entirely upon God's righteousness. This this righteousness from God, Paul says, comes apart from the law. We don't get it from the law. It is entirely dependent on the work of Christ. So I once knew an evangelist that loved little acronyms, and I noted this one. Faith, forsaking all, I trust him. That's faith. That's one way to express it. I also love this illustration that there was a person who fell off a cliff. I don't know why. He fell partway down. And he managed to grab hold to a bush, a tree, a root that was growing out of the side of the cliff. And he's holding on to this thing, not very far down. And he's terrified, of course, and and, and the, the distance yawns below him. And he yells for help, and someone answers and says, yes, I'll help you. Just let go of the bush. And as the story goes, this person says... After a while, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) And I just think this is a lovely illustration of what it means to trust Christ. We just try desperately for anything that we can do to control this outcome. And faith says, forsaking all, I trust him. 
Mm-hmm. I let go, and if Christ doesn't catch me, I'm not caught. Mm-hmm. It's just like that. If we had the time, uh, chapter 3 is a, a great way to explore just all of the ways in which salvation is brought to us through the work of Christ. So we use words like justification to talk about the legal change from guilty to not guilty. We talk about redemption to understand that Christ has purchased us with his sacrifice. We talk about propitiation, this temple analogy that it is through the work of Christ that somehow uh, the wrath of God is satisfied. We talk about reconciliation. We were enemies and now we're friends. We even talk about victory, that we, Christ has won uh, over Satan. We don't have time for that today. I think it's important to ask this question, though. Why would God want to justify us? And he says... Paul does in Romans, because in the past, God's forbearance only postponed judgment, and because in the present, without Christ, his justice would otherwise require satisfaction from us. So, there's a problem here. So, why why does God justify us? What would be your answer? Why does God justify us? Yeah. Well, it seems to me it starts with God, uh, his own character, and uh, the desire to bring glory to himself. Um, Feels like the starting place to me. Okay, sure. But why does he justify us? And I think a very satisfactory answer is that he loves us. And I really try to get us to understand that love. Hmm. Why does he justify us? Yes, as you said, to, to bring uh, glory to himself. But we're in that picture, right. I think, because he wants us there. Yeah. Which is really, really, really cool. <laughs> so faith relies entirely on God's righteousness. Faith is the only way to get credit with God. That's chapter 4. Um, you cannot get credit with God by your works. Not even that patriarch Abraham was able to get credit with God because of his works. We cannot get salvation, as the ad used to say, the old-fashioned way. You can't earn it. It's credited by faith. And and chapter 4 takes a close look at Abraham's faith, um, and it describes what kind of faith that he has. So first of all, he explains the object of Abraham's faith, which he says is the God who gives life to the dead. Abraham had some understanding that God gave life to the dead to the extent that he was willing to sacrifice his son, believing that God would bring him back. God is also Abraham's God, the God who calls things that are not as though they are, which seems kind of dangerous but which is a lovely truth about God, that he sees what will be even though it's not, and he can call it into being. I also make a point that I actually dwell on quite a bit, and that is from Romans chapter 4, 
the power of faith is not in faith itself. It's in the object of the faith. So I give them a multiple choice question with all of the points on one question. Given only the following two choices, which is likely to produce the best outcome for life and eternity? A, strong faith in a weak object, or B, weak faith in a strong object? People always get this one right. It's weak faith in a strong... Now, of course, we want strong faith in a strong object, but given these two choices, I think it's very important for us to understand it isn't our faith, really, that's the powerful force here. It is the, it is the object Mm-hmm. of our faith and then we have fun asking questions like so how much faith does it take uh, Abraham's justifying faith um, was in this great God and then it also tells us something about the character of Abraham's faith which I think is important verse 18 of chapter 4 Abraham's faith was based on the word of God so what he believed was just as it had been said to him. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have moved in circles where people taught that if we believed something, that would bring it about. And that is not the kind of faith Abram had. He did not believe things that God had not said to him. He believed the things that God had said to him. And I'm also very impressed that Abraham's faith that God would do what he said is explicitly carried out while facing the facts. We don't have to play pretend with God if, if in fact, we are in a difficult situation, if we are ill, if we are in danger. We don't have to say, no, I'm not, because then I'm not trusting God. Abraham's faith was in what God had told him, and it was acknowledging the facts. He was too old. He knew it. So faith and facts, I believe, are not mutually exclusive. We don't have to, we don't have to choose one or the other. So for us, uh, the object of our faith is the same God as Abraham's. It's the God who can call things into existence, the God who will fulfill his promises, the God who raised Jesus from the dead for our justification. That's the God that I think saving faith is placed in. So Paul highlights our sinfulness. He highlights uh, how Christ is saving us. He, he talks about the object of our faith and then moves into what? And then he moves into how does this faith work itself out in our lives in relation to sin? So chapter 6, 7, and 8, what do we believe about freedom from sin? So uh, up to this point, Paul has talked a lot about grace. And then he seems to develop this concern that grace might be perceived uh, as immunity from prosecution. And he 
doesn't seem to go along with that idea. So that moves us really in in chapters six, seven, and eight. It moves us from justification, which is, you know, we're in right standing with God, to talking about how does that right standing with God change the realities of our lives, and we call that sanctification. So justification is a beautiful thing. What 6, 7, and 8 help us understand is that's just the first part of salvation. That's not the whole salvation package. Part of the salvation package is a change of life, uh, of sanctification. And we have to understand that this sanctification is a work of God. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. But unlike the work of justification, which God does himself on our behalf, Scripture teaches that sanctification is a work of God that we actually participate in. It's, it's a shared thing. So in, in chapter 6, um, Paul asks, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? He asks these questions repeatedly, and he always answers the same way, Never! And why not? In this case, he says, because we're dead to sin. Well, I don't know about you, Jeremy, I, I have a strong suspicion that you don't always feel dead to sin. I can testify that I do not always feel dead to sin. So what does this mean? How does this work out? And there's this great outline in chapter 6 for us. Paul says, first of all, I want you to know. Don't you know this truth about you that what happened to Christ happened to you? This is what some have called in Christ mysticism, but Paul is making the point that because Christ died to sin, we died with Christ, as is illustrated by baptism, where we are buried with him and rise up with him to newness of life, great phrase from Romans. And then he describes that as that we are, we are symphotoi with Christ. So we're sort of like those vines that grow together because we are united with him. We've, we're co-buried, we're, we're co-risen. Because of that joint reality, because Christ died to sin, we also have died to sin. So because we're united with Christ, we have been freed from sin. He doesn't say freed from sins, because we still struggle with that, but he's saying something fundamental has changed in our relationship to sin. It is no longer our master. There's been a change because of Christ. Not because we've become better somehow, but because of our unity with Christ, we've died to sin. And then he says, I want you to know that, which there's no... um, spiritual understanding here. This is knowledge. I want you to know that this is true. And then he says, I want you to reckon on it. I want you to live as if that were true. So the challenge for us, I think, is in spite of whatever our personal history may be, in spite of the history of our family, that we all do this, we always have. Paul says, no. If you've been united with Christ, something real, something fundamental 
has changed. Sin shall no longer be your master. Phil, can I interrupt there just briefly? You use the word, um, I forget the phrase you use, but you use the word mysticism in there. The mechanics of this change, is it just fundamentally a shift that's happened in sort of the spiritual realm, or is there like a more mechanical explanation of of what's shifted of being united in Christ, or how do you think about that? I think that... I call it mysticism because I can't feel the difference, but I'm supposed to know that it's true, and then I'm supposed to act like it's true. I'm supposed to reckon on it being true. Uh, we sometimes use the illustration of uh, an animal fence. An animal gets accustomed to going so far and stopping. Maybe you turn off the power and the fence isn't active. The animal's going to stop. And it's like, for us, we're so accustomed to sinning and we just always do that because we think that's how we are and we can't escape it. But Paul says something has changed. In this case, the power has gone on, <laughs> not off. And you don't have to sin anymore. And it's like an element of faith that uh, our faith is in the person who's declared this, the person who's enacted this thing to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. It's not that we don't struggle. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not under any illusions that I will never sin again. But Paul is urging upon us count on something having changed because he says don't you know it has you've been united with christ and because that's true because i sin is no longer my master his third step then is to offer yourselves to god as instruments of righteousness the, the parts of your body offer them to god because they belong to him so that's chapter 6, and we, we jump ahead to, to chapter 8. He begins to lay out all of the freedoms that we have, because this is true, and because we have the Spirit. We're, no, we're under no condemnation. We've been liberated from that law, that power of, of death, and um, what the law was powerless to do. I love this. Well, he said, what the law was powerless to do, which was make us righteous, God did. That's true for justification. That's true for sanctification. The law can't make us righteous. The law can't put us in right standing with God. But because the law couldn't, God said, I'll do it. So in sum, um, we could call it uh, the, the indicative to sort of just declare what is true. We have been delivered by Christ and empowered by the Spirit for newness of life, for a changed way of living. There's the command or the imperative, act as if this is true. Don't surrender to the old way you did things. It's changed. And then how do you put this into operation? That's faith. Faith to believe 
that newness of life is possible. Are these resources adequate for people like you and me? If we say that Romans was written to people like you and me, I think the answer has to be yes. And I don't think we accomplish all of that in an instant. And so my encouragement always is, if God is speaking to us about anything, just obey him. Take that next step, and it's a great walk. Romans goes through 9 and 11, Jews, Gentiles. It's important, but not very pastorally interesting, I suppose. <laughs> How do you cover that in the class, then? Uh, like all the rest, in some detail. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I'm sure a number of students want to fish out the great... Uh, Arminian Calvin debate that's those, sort of pushed up in chapter nine. Those names come up <laughs> on occasion. <laughs> I mean, I uh, I insist that God is sovereign and free to act, and we are responsible. And that's as far as you go. That's. Uh, to go further, uh, to go very much further, I think, is to go beyond Scripture. Mm. But there are those who disagree um, vehemently. <laughs> so after we get through 9, 10, and 11, you get to chapter 12. So right after the doxology in which Paul expresses his worship for, for the God who is able to fulfill his promises in spite of his chosen people's unbelief. It's like, wow, who could have thought up this way that he will bring in then the whole world and then he will also bring in his own people. After that, he says, so in view of the mercies of this great God, what should we do? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, whole and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we ask the question, what do we believe about God's will? Young people, maybe as much as any of us, possibly more, always want to know, well, what is God's will? And, and Romans actually offers some very helpful advice. What is God's will? First of all, he wants us to offer ourselves to him without reservation. This whole idea of offer your bodies as living sacrifices because it's reasonable, it's appropriate, um, and that's what he urges us to do by rejecting the world and choosing to follow Christ. And he says, if you do this, then you will be able to know what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. He wants us to offer ourselves without reservation. He wants us to know who we are in Christ. He says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. 
there's the word hyper in the Greek. So I say, don't be hyper about yourself. You are not worth less than anybody else. You are not worth more than anyone else. You are a child of God, and that's where this all starts. We want to know who we are in Christ. He wants us to be functioning in his church. And that's where the next verses in chapter 12, he uses the analogy of the body that we're members of one another. No one is extra. No one is superfluous. And I, I often see this point sort of taking root in students' minds. We have this tendency to say, well, other people have gifts, but I don't. And Paul is like, every person has something to offer the body of Christ. And because it is a gracious gift from God, he expects them to exercise it. So don't say you have nothing to offer. You do. He wants us to be functioning in his church because we all belong to one another. He wants us to love one another. And his first advice about love in in verse 9 is that we are to love unhypocritically. And then we're supposed to love lovingly. I think that's kind of great. <laughs> and of course, he's using you know different words for love, but what he's essentially saying is love with affection. Don't love from this distant point of view, this unemotional sort of I value you. He's saying, no, love lovingly. Love with affection. Cultivate mutual affection with one another. And, of course, this great advice to outdo one another in showing honor. So sometimes we've tried to, to think up ways in which we could actually have contests or how you could outdo. But, of course, that's kind of self-defeating, isn't it? I've always thought these verses, uh, nine. I shouldn't say always thought, but verses 9 through 21... You could spend just years of your life uh, sort of living into those descriptors, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it would make for an incredible body if we if we grabbed those for all they're worth. You're right. They're powerful. You're right, and that's uh, that's within the body uh, of Christ. Uh, later on in the chapter, it seems as though he might be looking outward a bit when he tells us he mm-hmm. wants to bless our enemies, not seek revenge. So I, I look at this chapter within this framework of what do we believe about God's will? And I say God's will is centered on how we relate to him and how we relate to others. That is the center of God's will. Where we do that and in what roles we do that is just context really, for expressing God's will, which is to relate to him properly and to one another. I think if we understand that, it doesn't take away the need to to make practical decisions. I think it puts them in the right perspective. Yeah, it gives you a framework through which to make those other decisions. And maybe they don't seem quite as central to everything important. Like if I don't take the right next step with my education or my job, like, I will miss God's will. No, God's will fundamentally is that you love him and his church. Yeah.
Yeah. So Phil, take us into uh, the last segment of, uh, of Romans that you, as you lay out Romans in six segments here. So the last belief that I would talk about here is what do we believe about each other? And this is chapters 14 and 15, in which Paul talks about the social expressions of what it means to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Christ. And basically the concern in this section is how do we respond helpfully to diversity? Some believe this, some believe that. What are we to do with this? And I think the challenge is often expressed as distinguishing in our fellowship between what is essential and what is non-essential or disputable. Because some things we understand we can't have uh, diversity about, but some things we can. And we make these long lists of things that we are diverse about, and then we try to come up with a list of essentials, which is really interesting. It tends to balloon and then shrink as we keep thinking, well, no, actually, <laughs> you know, okay. But there are essentials. They don't go away by any means. Paul says here, accept one another. This is his fundamental plea and argument in this section. In the Roman church, he describes a party of strong who apparently people who felt free to eat meat or to not honor certain festival kinds of applications. He calls them the strong and the others he calls the weak. And we try to Make sure we understand that when he says weak in faith, he doesn't mean they don't trust Christ. He seems to be pointing perhaps to those with a Jewish heritage who aren't quite able to let go of those things. The issues that they were struggling with uh, had something to do with days, something to do with diet. He doesn't tell us very much about it, but clearly they knew what was going on. So what are the principles here? And he basically says, if you're strong, do not despise the weak. Hmm. And if you're weak, do not condemn the strong. Hmm. And I'm just so impressed that those are precisely the things that the strong and the weak naturally do. If we're the strong, we're like, oh, those people, they don't understand. We, we've got to free them from their shackles. Do it the way we do it. And if you're the weak, you're like, those people must not even be Christians. Look at that. Look what they're doing. And Paul says, no, 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 no. To both parties, he says, accept those whom Christ has accepted. That's why. Some judge this. Some judge that. Be fully convinced in your own mind. I'm also impressed, though Paul clearly identifies himself as strong in this context and says, I know that I have these liberties in Christ. He says, he doesn't say, and so these issues don't matter. What he says is, don't judge, don't scorn, and be fully convinced in your own mind. So you don't give up your your convictions. No. In fact, 
you try to educate your convictions. You consider the issue and see if you're where you need to be. Mm-hmm. And once you've decided that, um, then you should act accordingly. And he urges us to act in honor of God. He says the one who honors the day or observes the day does so in honor of God. And the one who says, no, this day is the same as every day. I serve God every day. They do that in honor of God, not in honor of my preferences, in honor of how I would normally go about things, but in honor of God. And, and resolve not to be a stumbling block. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't set myself up to try to cause someone else to stumble. Um, and we should concentrate on the things that really matter. God's kingdom is not about food and drink, he insists. I love chapter 14, verse 17 and 18. The kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the the central argument. We're all going to stand before God. He's going to judge each one of us. And so we should understand that Mm. as we relate to one another. And then he concludes that section with this beautiful prayer that we're imitating Christ when we honor one another and accept one another and bear with one another, because sometimes it gets kind of tight in our fellowships. He says Christ didn't please himself. Uh, We should be trying to build up our neighbor, and if we do that, then we have this spirit of unity, and out of that is going to come sound of praise to God because we will be joyful in in our fellowship. That seems like an especially timely word for this day. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I tell them at the beginning that I have taught Romans for many years. I am familiar with it. I will do my best to explain it. I will not do that perfectly, um, but I, and I want them to understand that I am not going to be their ultimate teacher, that we will talk about it, but it's really them and the Holy Spirit. It, I mean, it's the text of Romans and the Holy Spirit. That's the context for learning in this class, and I believe that, and uh, it's a beautiful thing when I see that being expressed in the way that they're responding to the text, that this year there have been so many uh, expressions of teachability, and I used to not be aware of this, or I always thought that, but actually Roman says this, and I'm, I'm just so encouraged by that kind of response to the text. Yeah. Is there, a, is there a particular passage that you see students get hold of uh, maybe on a, a, like you see a broader range of students sort of land in this passage and really you see the Holy Spirit speaking to them through this particular passage in the book of Romans. I'm not sure um, if I have a good answer to that. I find it interesting that, that chapter 12 often rises to the top. They often choose to memorize that chapter for for class assignment. I think this year, with the unique circumstances, 
Chapter 13 has had a very different kind of impact than Mm -hmm. I've ever seen it have before. And you're talking about COVID and how we respond to government and that kind of thing? Exactly. And, And how we look to those outside. I just remember reading someone's journal saying, I've never really thought about this before, but if we don't cooperate with the government, why would we expect them to cooperate with us as believers? We haven't demonstrated that we're very trustworthy partners in this process. Mm. I've never had those kinds of reflections on Romans 13. We've talked about speeding. We've talked about taxes. But we've, we've never had a context for maybe fundamentally rethinking attitudes toward the state like we have this year. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Phil, a couple other questions in just sort of considering the book of Romans. Uh, what's the most misunderstood aspect of Romans? The thing that people often get wrong. I don't, students don't seem to have a very good understanding of Romans. They've read it, they've heard it, but they've never digested it as a whole. I hear that a lot, like, this book used to be, I don't know, sort of a glob, and, and now it kind of makes sense. This yeah. is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the questions that's, you know, important to me, uh, especially as being part of an institution that really seeks to serve the body of Christ, is uh, how... How do you see the book of Romans? Like, are there pieces that that you see as especially relevant and critical for the body of Christ in this day and age? I mean, it's always relevant. It's always critical. But, uh, you know, sometimes there are certain pieces of the gospel that might get lost, or there are certain uh passages in scripture that we forget as a body or that have been twisted or you know, any number of things that we have to revisit to sort of recapture Christ and his kingdom effectively as his people. And I'm curious, as you taught Romans, as you teach Romans, is there a piece of that that you think about? I think for me personally, what we talked about at the very beginning This whole book is about the gospel of God, which is really about Jesus. So when I say, if it's not about Jesus, it ain't gospel, that's really, really important. We we have ways of bypassing that, or leaving that out, or adding to that, and I think that's just where it's at. The gospel is Jesus. Hmm. Anything else we make it, it's not gospel. So the church has found lots of ways to miss that point, I think. And for those of us who have grown up in, how shall we say, in communities of faith that have been very specific about expectations, I think it's so important to understand that however good those things may be, they 
are worthless as means of salvation. And, and we know that if we would ask anyone that, they would say that, but it tends to creep in. How do we... I, I, I think most believers can come to a point in their life where you realize you've twisted that somehow, and that the desire to obey God, the desire to be faithful to God has been twisted, and there's a loss you sort of recognize, at least uh, if things are working correctly, you recognize that there's been a loss of that sort of focus on Christ. Um, how do you how do you embrace this call of walking out our salvation uh, and yet doing so uh, from a position of uh, maybe we can say intimacy with Christ or focus on Christ, being with Christ, having Christ at the center? What are the things that can contribute to that loss in us where we begin to twist it as you you say this is the tendency. How do we avoid that, or how do we guard against that? Or I would suggest reading Romans. <laughs> Paul is dogged in sort of tracing out for the Jew every confidence they might have in anything other than God's promise. It, it, it's not very difficult to sort of apply that to our own non-Jewish experience. If, if we have any of those family names, history of faithfulness to a, a religious practice, to a community, and Paul is very good at saying, nah, that ain't going to help. Nope. In fact, that's sort of a hazard for you because you might trust that and you better not. If you don't want to be ashamed, i.e., if you don't want to be let down on the day of God's judgment, you better have it all staked on Jesus. And that's a, that's a, that's a pretty helpful image, I think. Yeah. Uh, one more question for you, Phil. In relation to how you teach the class and what you ask of your students, you, you mentioned that you have them journaling. Uh, so uh, here a minute ago, you mentioned that one of the best ways to sort of maintain that spiritual vibrancy is reading Romans. Uh, how do you um, have your students, is there a particular way you have your students journaling through the book of Romans that might be helpful to those who are listening to this podcast? Uh, it's study, which requires discipline and which the the school environment is very helpful in providing. But if you have that discipline, then the three steps that I ask students to take for each segment of Romans, sometimes it's a chapter, sometimes it's less, is to first of all restate it in their own terms. Hmm. The, what is this passage saying? What if I tried to say the same thing in my words? So there's that sort of internalizing that happens. Secondly, I ask them to consult commentaries and see what others have learned from this passage and 
and note something of interest, maybe uh, something said particularly well or some new idea. And then the third thing is, so what? So now that I've gotten some new understanding of the passage or some better understanding, how am I going to change either the way I think, the way I act? How's this, how's this going to change me? Mm-hmm. And then take the next passage and we'll do it again. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Phil, for walking us uh, through a brief overview of Romans and uh, for joining us on this podcast today. It's been helpful to get a little better glimpse of the book of Romans here. My privilege. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of Crash Course, a podcast where we spend an hour diving into, in this case, the book of Romans. Have a great day.